Thank you, President Hardesty, uh, for that uh, warm and gracious welcome. Uh, thank you, the peers, for the hospitality that you and the College of Business and Economics have shown me today. Um, many enlightening encounters with your students and faculty uh, with the result of that. I want to thank you, President Hardesty, as well, along with the athletic department and the men's basketball team, for making this an away game. My, my fear, my suspicion, is that had this been a home game, we could hold this lecture in Dean Sears' office, perhaps the hallway out there. Let me assure you um, that uh, you know we tried hard, but we, we, we failed to be able to schedule this on anything other than Valentine's Day, and for that I apologize. I want to assure you that I've obtained proper and necessary dispensation from my kind and understanding spouse, uh, Lisa Halberstadt, back in Richmond, uh, to be here with you tonight. And I assume that most of you have similarly obtained a special dispensation from your kind and understanding partners, um, or else your uh, confirmed bachelors or bachelorettes. For those of you who've um, uh, for, for whom your partner's idea of a romantic evening is a, a lecture on federal or monetary policy, uh, all I can say is you have my sympathy. <laughs> I'll, I'll begin nonetheless, uh, plow ahead. I'm going to talk to you tonight about the evolution of Federal Reserve uh, policy, how it goes about conducting monetary policy. Um, and as my title suggests, um, a transition is in uh, trade. Uh, and of course, the most striking transition at the Federal Reserve this year is the change in leadership. As President Hardesty noted, on January 31st, uh, Chair Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan served his last day in office and chaired his last uh, meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, the body that uh, governs monetary policy in the United States. His successor, Ben Bernanke, took over the following day, and tomorrow morning, Chairman Bernanke delivers his first testimony to Congress as uh, Chairman of the Federal Reserve. Much has been written and said about this changing of the guard, and I think it's quite natural in circumstances like this for commentators to look for contrast between an influential leader and a successor, and to look for likely differences in philosophy and practice. But in my opinion, too much has been made of the differences between these two gentlemen. Thus, the second theme of my talk, continuity. In brief remarks delivered upon the occasion of the announcement of his nomination, Ben Bernanke deliberately emphasized the stability of monetary policy. He stated that his, quote, first priority will be to maintain continuity with the policies and policy strategies established during the Greenspan years. But I'm not going to ask you to take his word for it. Tonight, I hope you to, con to convince you that a careful student of the Federal Reserve uh, during the <clears throat> last few years should have good reason to believe that the practice of monetary policy will, to continue, will continue to evolve gradually. I'll argue that a certain economic logic uh, has influenced the way policy and practice have evolved during the Greenspan years and that that logic will continue to influence the evolution of policy during the Bernanke years. In particular, the stability of the public's understanding of and expectations about the future conduct of monetary policy has been central, I'll argue, to Chairman Greenspan's success. And as a consequence of that, the Federal Reserve has found it useful to make the conduct of monetary policy steadily more transparent over the years. A 
believe this logic will continue to hold sway in the near future, and that the Fed is likely to continue to emphasize credibility and enhance transparency in years ahead. But let me be clear. Understanding the economic logic uh, that has guided the evolution of monetary policy over the last several decades should take nothing away from an appreciation of the significant, very significant accomplishment of Chairman Greenspan. He served as Fed Chairman for 18 years, and during his record during that time, in my opinion, was exemplary. Under his leadership, the Federal Reserve brought inflation down to historically low levels, and that contributed, in turn, to a period of extended economic expansion, interrupted by only two brief and mild recessions. Indeed, the phrase, the great moderation, has been used uh, to describe this phenomenal improvement in macroeconomic performance uh, during the period following the mid-1980s, which was just before uh, he assumed office. In essence, he successfully completed the task begun by his predecessor, Paul Volcker, of re-establishing the expectation of price stability that had been lost in the inflationary decade of the 1970s. I believe we are fortunate to have in Ben Bernanke as the new chairman, uh, someone with practical experience in policymaking, and someone who's made important contributions uh, to the understanding of monetary economics. He's well-versed in both the economic logic of monetary policy and the economic research that's been devoted to dissecting the monetary policy errors of the 1930s and the 1970s. From his previous experience on the Board of Governors, he knows what it's like to make monetary policy in real time. And he's therefore eminently qualified, in my view, to continue to lead Fed policymaking along the path laid out by his predecessors. And his public comments thus far, particularly in his confirmation hearings on November 15th, suggest that we can expect the type of continuity uh, in Fed policy that I'll be talking about tonight. I should say at the outset, the usual thing here, uh, that, as always, my re remarks reflect my own views and not necessarily the views of my colleagues at the Federal Reserve System, particularly any current or past chairman. Many observers, myself included, have argued that one of the hallmarks of the Greenspan legacy is adherence to a systematic approach to policymaking. Now, the value of a systematic approach to monetary policy goes beyond the usefulness of merely minimizing unexpected deviations from what the public expects. The purpose of monetary, after all, monetary policy, after all, is to stabilize the value of money. And the value people place on money today is determined by the value they expect people to place on money in the near future. That value is determined, in turn, by the value they expect people to place on money a little bit after that. So the future conduct of monetary policy, the value money is given in the future by the conduct of monetary policy, is a fundamental determinant of the value of money today. Therefore, the key to stabilizing the value of money is getting people to understand the systematic way in which monetary policy will be conducted in the near future. But saying that Jeremy Greenspan introduced systematic policymaking is not quite enough. And it's not quite right, either. After all, monetary policy during the inflationary 1970s was systematic in its own peculiar way. An econometrician was trying to estimate a statistical relationship between macroeconomic variables and
policy setting, uh, its interest rate setting, during the 60s and 70s, uh, would be able to fit a pretty good relationship. And indeed, many econometricians have done so, and it fits pretty well. But those relationships generally differ significantly from what you get when you estimate the same relationships over the period of uh, the Volcker and Greenspan years. Uh, in fact, you can show that those are very statistically significant differences. The question then is just what systematic relationship a monetary policy has to economic variables. In the 1960s and 1970s, monetary policy typically allowed inflation to rise noticeably during economic expansion. As the economy recovered from a recession and growth picked up, the Fed kept interest rates from rising as much as they needed to rise. And in fact, at times, the Fed failed to raise nominal interest rates by as much as inflation increased. Now, key variable for monetary policy is real interest rates, interest rates adjusted to subtract out the effect of expected inflation. So interest rates minus expected inflation, the real interest rate. Um, when we failed to raise interest rates by as much as inflation went up, we were implicitly allowing real interest rates to fall and thus providing further monetary stimulus at exactly the wrong time. The acceleration of inflation that we got ultimately provoked a sharp tightening in policy in order to reduce inflation. And that often exacerbated or even caused the subsequent recession. Policymakers were afraid that the, the subsequent slump would be too deep, and so we often um, eased policy before inflation had fully fallen down to where it had been before the run-up. So inflation was essentially ratcheting upwards over the period of the 60s and 70s. An important part of the economic instability of the 70s can be attributed to the fact that the public's expectations about inflation become untethered. They begin to swing around over the business cycle. For a long time, indeed for centuries, inflation expectations before that had been anchored by commodity standards. That is to say, um, by arrangements that tied the value of money to the value of a precious metal like gold or silver. Under a commodity standard, inflation isn't completely eliminated. Since changes in the supply and demand of that precious metal that the value of the money is tied to can change the value of money itself. But in the long run, the value of a commodity like gold or silver is ultimately determined by the cost of extraction. And experience has shown that over the long haul, that's fairly stable. So the commodity standards provided people with confidence that inflation would ultimately settle back down, that the value of money would not persistently drift away uh, from its reference value. The 20th century saw a gradual uh, but definite departure from the gold standard, culminating in the closing of the U.S. gold window in 1971. It's not surprising that expectational stability would have been lost around that time. When inflation was observed to rise in the 1970s, the public, therefore, saw no obvious mechanism in place for bringing it back down. And so higher inflation became immediately built into people's long-run expectations. The story of the Volcker-Greenspan era, then, is the story of how expectational stability was restored. The story of how the Fed regained the public's confidence that it would and could keep inflation low and stable. The emergence of persistent inflation expectations on the part of the public during the 1970s 
was one factor that contributed to important developments in the academic discipline of macroeconomics at the time. Before the 1970s, the consensus framework for understanding the effects of monetary policy treated the public's expectations about future inflation as a fixed parameter, unaffected by the actual conduct of monetary policy. That framework contributed to the policy errors of the time by encouraging policymakers to discount the possibility that the public's expectations would shift up over time in response to the actual conduct of monetary policy. Now, economists had already at that time begun to think more carefully about how the public's expectations were formed. And in the 1970s, they made a lot of progress studying models in which the public's expectations were tied very closely to the actual conduct of monetary policy. The experience of the 1970s confirmed the importance of that link. It taught us essentially that you can't fool all the people all the time. People learn from what they see, and it was unreasonable to assume that people would continue to expect inflation to settle down to low levels when they kept seeing inflation rise over time. Now, these models we developed in the 1970s had a very powerful influence on the conduct of monetary policy since then. They provided a compelling diagnosis of the deterioration in inflation that we witnessed in that decade. Monetary policy had a systematic inflationary bias, and the public had come to understand that, and they behaved accordingly. The models also provided the Fed and central banks around the world with a compelling diagnosis. Uh, I'm sorry, a prescription. The prescription is to systematically adhere to, and, this is very important, convince the public we would systematically adhere to, a non-inflationary monetary policy. Now, that prescription is easier written down, easier said, uh, than actually followed. Merely announcing the intention uh, to bring inflation down is not sufficient. After all, the Federal Reserve had railed against inflation uh, throughout the 70s, advocating lower inflation throughout that time period. The Fed needed a way to convincingly demonstrate our commitment to, to bring inflation down. And the Fed began this process in October 1979 under Chairman Paul Volcker by allowing interest rates to rise sharply and withstanding a deep recession in order to bring inflation down. Thereafter, the Fed often had to raise the Fed funds rate or policy instrument in response to signs of inflation rising again or in response to inflation scares. These are situations, these are instances in which uh, signs in the bond market emerge that expectations of inflation are rising, even before inflation itself rises. Over time, however, inflation has stabilized um, at a low level, and inflation scares have been much less frequent. Uh, the public has learned, really, that the Fed uh, will respond systematically uh, in a way that's designed to keep inflation low. The conduct of monetary policy in the last two decades has brought us to a pretty favorable place. Inflation is low and stable. The public appears to be fairly confident that it will remain so. This is the Greenspan legacy, and it is now our responsibility under the leadership of our new chairman to preserve that credibility. The challenge of fulfilling that responsibility in the years ahead is going to be analytically demanding, in my view. For how does one conduct monetary policy when inflation is low and stable? Here, we can draw on, I believe, our understanding from a class of models that economic researchers have developed and studied, made, made great progress on in the last decade or two. 
this research program is still in progress, and there's important uh, out, outstanding open questions. But I think a few principles that are fairly clear have emerged. First, holding interest rates steady until inflation or deflation pressures are actually visible is clearly inappropriate. We can do much better than that with monetary policy. Instead, policy should be conducted recognizing that real interest rates should respond to fluctuations in economic conditions. A real interest rate, after all, is a relative price. It's the price of current resources in terms of future resources. It represents the real amount of goods and services that you have to sacrifice in the future in addition to the repayment of principal in order to get a given amount of goods and resources today. So it's the rate of exchange, as you, if you will, between future resources and current resources. I've emphasized elsewhere in other speeches that real interest rates should be expected to fluctuate over time as, uh, as there are fluctuations in the relative pressure on current and future resources. When resource demand is less now than it will be in the, in the near future, as was the case arguably from 2001 through early 2004, real interest rates need to be low to reflect that relative lack of pressure on current resources. When relative pressure on current resources rises, as has been happening arguably since mid-2004, then real interest rates need to rise. In such circumstances, if the Fed sets and keeps the funds rate too low, then the inevitable result is going to be rising inflation. The Federal Reserve's um, behavior has thus evolved in a way that's consistent with the evolution of our understanding of macroeconomics and of how inflation growth and interest rates interact over time. Alan Greenspan's leadership was vital to that evolution. He understood the importance of stabilizing the public's expectations regarding future monetary policy, and he proved highly skilled at sensing the evolution of those expectations and at being able to influence them through the practice of monetary policy. His focus on the Fed's credibility really dovetailed with the advances in macroeconomics, uh, both inside and outside the Fed, um, over the last 20 or 30 years. It's fitting, then, that the leadership of the Fed should pass now to Ben Bernanke, who, in addition, as I said, to his experience on the Fed um, board, has made important contributions to research on monetary policy during the academic career. The importance of expectation and how the public and how policy effectiveness really hinges on expectations is one of the most significant contributions, as I said, uh, of macroeconomic research in recent decades. Now, given this importance of expectations, you might wonder whether a central bank can influence expectations uh, through its words as well as its deeds. In particular, what role should communication by the Federal Reserve play? in shaping the public's expectations. Now, I'll start by noting that by itself, uh, communication is not a particularly powerful tool for influencing someone's beliefs. Any parents will tell you that. To be effective, communication needs to be backed up by and consistent with the parent's actual behavior. Otherwise, listeners, children, will tend to discount what the parent says in favor of how the parents actually behave. Uh, that's the popular aphorism, actions speak louder than words. Words can matter, though. If the public, public believes that the policymaker is going to be compelled 
going to feel compelled to live up to those words, they can really matter. A central banker who pledges to keep inflation low but then persistently lets it rise runs the risk of not being believed the next time around, and that's bound to be costly for central banks. This risk then strongly discourages making empty promises. And a clear central bank commitment as a result, I think, to a policy objective is capable of influencing the public's expectations. So we're going to talk about transparency now, an idea you've probably heard about a lot in connection with the Federal Reserve. This is one widely noticed feature of the Greenspan legacy, the dramatic increase in transparency during his tenure. This is especially true with regard to the Fed's communications about its policy actions. Before 1994, the, the FOMC released only a, a difficult-to-interpret document known as, ominously, the Directive, uh, that had to do with the supply of bank reserves uh, in the market. It was, it was a directive to the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which conducted the monetary policy operations on behalf of the entire system. We only released it following the next meeting, thus after the next directive had been issued, so essentially after it had been superseded. Market participants were faced essentially with radio silence, and in response to this, uh, an industry of Fed watchers uh, developed uh, that tried to infer policy actions from movements in money market rates immediately following uh, a meeting. In a series of steps beginning in 1994, the FOMC began to expand the amount of information it released to the public. First, the intended target for the federal funds rate was released immediately following the meeting. This was supplemented by what was called a balance of risks assessment. Uh, it was often described as indicating the tilt of policy, that is to say whether a rise or a fall in interest rates was more likely at the next meeting. Over time, the statements gradually included more discussion of current and prospective economic conditions. And then finally, beginning in 2005, the FOMC began releasing the full minutes of the meeting three weeks following the meeting, rather than waiting until after the next uh, meeting, as had been the practice. Back in 2003, the FOMC began issuing statements that sent fairly explicit signals about the likely path of the funds rate. In early 2003, core inflation, the way we like to measure it, had drifted down to about 1% and was flirting with the territory below that. The statement released after the May meeting in 2003 made reference to, quote, an unwelcome further fall in inflation, unquote. This was something of a watershed in Fed history. It was the first time in our modern experience that inflation had threatened to fall too low. Up until that point from the 50s on, we had been trying to keep inflation from rising or to bring inflation down from what we viewed as inappropriately elevated levels. The language labeling um, a further fall in inflation as unwelcome conveyed the committee's intention to keep core inflation above 1%. At the following meeting, uh, in June of 2003, the FOMC lowered the Fed funds rate to 1%, where it stayed for quite some time, and it repeated the unwelcome reference. After the August meeting, the statement said that, quote, policy accommodation can be maintained for a considerable period. A considerable period um, began to have a lot of meeting. This, too, was a watershed, the first time that the committee had communicated about the likely future path of the funds rate. Since then, the committee has continued to communicate about the likely nurturing policy path using phrases like can be patient or at a pace that is likely to be measured. 
this series of moves towards greater communication, um, I'll argue, represented a natural progression. For decades, the Fed had articulated its desire for low and stable inflation. In the 1990s, it found it had to go beyond just articulating general goals and began disclosing current policy actions and their rationale. And thus, it was providing information on how past policy actions had depended on current and prospective uh, views of economic conditions. The balance of risk statements broke new ground by communicating, though somewhat elliptically, about the likely near-term policy direction. The forward-looking language used since 2003 has in turn provided richer insights into the policy actions that the committee believes uh, it would have to take in order to achieve its goals. I think it's important to be clear about what the committee communicates when it comments on near-term policy direction. Central banks set interest rates in response to incoming economic data. What ultimately drives that data is the evolution of economic fundamentals. That is, the evolution of technologies, pre consumer preferences, uh, and external factors like world commodity prices. So current policy setting, the current Fed funds rate, the current policy rate, should be thought of as a function, although it's undoubtedly a very complicated one, but it should be thought of as a function of those fundamentals. That's what systematic policy means. That's what it means for policy to be systematic. It's systematically related to those economic fundamentals. So when the FOMC communicates about the likely future path of policy rates, as it did from mid-2003 on, communicating about two separate things. One, the evolution of economic fundamentals, and two, is about how it's likely to respond to those fundamentals as they come in. I believe there's an important role for both types of communication, but I think it's really important to distinguish between the two. The striking feature of the period between 2000 and mid-2003 and now is that the likely evolution of economic fundamentals and the likely response combined to make the likely path of the Fed funds rate relatively clear, both to us and after we communicated to markets. Beginning in early 2004, for example, it was clear that short-term interest rates were going to have to rise steadily as the economy recovered and made the transition to a sustained growth path. Having now moved much closer to such a growth path, however, it may be much less common for the FOMC to find itself willing and able to forecast an extended string of rate changes. But if the federal funds rate path becomes less predictable than it has been over the last 14 FOMC meetings, does that mean that the committee must retreat for to saying little beyond announcing the rate decisions when they make them? In my opinion, the answer is no. My sense is that there will still be room for forward-looking language, but it will entail more conditional statements about how policy is likely to react to incoming fundamentals, in contrast to the less conditional statements that we've seen since 2003. I open my remarks tonight by noting the importance of systematic expectations regarding monetary policy, building better public understanding of how policy systematically responds to evolving economic conditions is the key to enhancing our credibility and improving the effectiveness of monetary policy over time. By moving to more conditional forward-looking language, I think there's probably more that can be done to build systematic public understanding. An important component of that understanding is the public sense 
of our long-run intentions for inflation. Several FOMC uh, committee members, including myself, have indicated a level or range of inflation rates uh, that they would like to see prevail over the long run. Although the committee itself has not formally adopted a goal or target for inflation, providing quantitative guidance to the public about the committee's long-run inflation intentions would have the benefit of reducing uncertainty about future monetary policy and more securely anchoring inflation expectations. In his nomination hearings last November, Chairman Bernanke acknowledged that he has supported the idea of quantitative inflation objectives in academic writings and in speeches as a member of the Board of Governors. But he assured the Senators that if confirmed, he would take no precipitate steps in that direction. And he indicated that the idea, quote, requires further study as well as extensive discussion and consultation, unquote. He went on to say that he would act only if a consensus developed, that doing so would further enhance our ability to achieve our mandated objectives. Personally, I've already expressed my own support for such a formal quantitative statement as a means of providing an anchor for long-term inflation expectations, and I look forward to further study and discussion of the issue under Chairman Bernanke's leadership. I suspect the next frontier in Fed communication beyond that will involve the framework we use for policy analysis. After we've had some practice in communicating our past actions and how we are likely to respond in the future, it will be time, I believe, to communicate more about why we will respond the way we will respond. Now, admittedly, this is going to be a tougher nut to crack, if only because genuine uh, scientific uncertainty typically surrounds economic inference, as in any sense. But to the extent that a reasonably firm consensus can be obtained on some basic principles, I believe it would aid public understanding for us to find ways to communicate them. Public understanding of the economic reasoning underlying our policy would help prevent drawing the wrong lessons from history. For example, market participants' response to the spike in energy prices that followed Hurricane Katrina suggested that people considered it possible or even likely that the F1C would pause in its sequence of rate hikes and that we would be willing to tolerate an acceleration in broader measures of inflation in response to the energy price increases. In the popular media, this was this expectation was tied to the experience with oil price shocks in the 1970s. But as I've already emphasized, the systematic part of policy in the 1970s was very different from what it became in the Greenspan years. There's no economic law that says energy prices have to pass through uh, to broader measures of inflation. And in fact, it's it's entirely up to the Monetary Policy Authority whether they do so or not. Such misunderstandings can create challenges uh, for policymakers. If the public comes to expect rising inflation based on an outdated view of how policy responds to an economic shock, then the task of preventing a rise in inflation becomes that much more difficult. I commented earlier about the nature of monetary policy when inflation is low and stable. I emphasize that real inflation-adjusted interest rates should be expected to fluctuate in such circumstances, uh, even in the absence of visible fluctuations in inflation pressures. With inflation low and steady, changes in real interest rates require changes in the nominal overnight policy rate that the Fed controls directly. And communicating that fact will help the public understand that policy needs to respond in a systematic way to changing real economic conditions. 
Moreover, focusing on real interest rates draws attention to how and why monetary policy must respond. Real interest rates must fluctuate, to reiterate, to accommodate changes in the relative pressure on current versus future resources. Widespread understanding of this would have aided the market response to Katrina. The storm impaired the supply of current resources relative to the future. So if anything, real interest rates had to rise rather than fall. To sum up then, Chairman Greenspan's success was predicated on establishing credibility. That is, widespread confidence in the future conduct of monetary policy and that it would be conducted in a way to keep inflation low and stable. Building that credibility through actions alone was insufficient, and the Greenspan Fed found it necessary to expand communication, first about current policy actions, then about likely prospective actions. To maintain and build that credibility, the Fed is likely to continue to look for ways to enhance communications in the years ahead. And our efforts in this direction will be informed both by a rich history of experience and by a growing body of knowledge gained from viewing that experience through the lens of economic logic. On a personal note, I've known Ben Bernanke professionally since shortly after his influential 1983 paper on money and credit in the Great Depression. He's an outstanding monetary economist, but also an eminently sensible monetary policy practitioner. And I look forward with enthusiasm to serving in the Bernanke Fed. Looking back, I count it as an extraordinary honor and privilege to have served under Chairman Greenspan. Mid 2004. Those are my remarks, and I thank you.